Would you like to be able to start conversations like a pro? Take The Sunday World, your daily dose of what's going on. Do not consume The Sunday World if you're involved in a drug cartel, you're a politician with something to hide, or you've appeared on a reality TV show and care about others' opinions. Consume The Sunday World responsibly. Always read the stories, gossip, and commentary. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. There was some queries over the use of the word fled. The defense said he didn't flee, he just went to Dublin. Of course, the, the prosecution are saying that he fled because the agreed fact that he did go to Dublin that evening. And then, of course, the fact that Joseph Puska had asked for his clothes to be burned. So that evening after he came home on the 12th of January, he had a shower and he admitted to this on the stand. He testified that, yes, he did ask for his clothes to be burned. He doesn't know what happened to them after that, whether or not they were burned. As far as he was concerned, he asked for that to happen. I'm Nicola Talent. And you're listening to Crime World, a podcast about criminals, drugs and the sins of the underworld in Ireland and across the globe. The prosecution and defence have concluded their closing statements in the trial of Joseph Puska, accused of murdering Ashling Murphy in January 2022. While one side say they have established beyond a reasonable doubt that Puska is guilty, the other say there is not enough evidence to convict Today, I'm talking to Crime World's Claude Amini, who has been covering the trial at the Central Criminal Court. I'm Niall Donald, and this is Crime World, a podcast from sundayworld.com. So the the trial continued at at a great pace today. The evidence is obviously completed. Joseph Puska pled not guilty to the murder of Ashling Murphy. And today we had the closing speeches from both the prosecution and the defence. And the judge began his summing up. He'll be back in tomorrow, I think he said, till till maybe till the afternoon to complete his his summing up. He he basically explained to the jury on which basis uh, what they should discard and what they should listen to, really. So he, I think he said, um, you know, they should put aside any notions of, of to do with race or ethnicity um, in in this case. Yeah, so he kind of specified that they should put aside any biases that they might have around race, ethnicity, whether it be gender identity, sexuality, um, anything like that. Um, so that's kind of normal what the what the jury the judge would say to the jury. But he really went into how the the case has been such there's been such media frenzy around it um you know and that not only when ashing murphy was murdered but also now following the trial and during the trial there's been a lot of media coverage so he did say to them you know the only facts in this case that you are to consider are the facts that you've heard in this in this room and um, because of course the function of a jury in a trial like this is they're on a fact-finding mission so the prosecution and defense they both 
you know, share their arguments. But the judge laid out to the jury today, you know, he explained his function was to rule on matters of law and deal with matters of law and theirs is to be fact finders. Um, he also pointed out to them, you know, he talked in depth about sort of the different principles of criminal trials. Um, so the presumption of innocence, the burden of proof and beyond a reasonable doubt. He explained what all those meant. He gave some great examples to them all to explain it. And he also kind of spoke about the function of a jury as a whole in the criminal justice system is to uh, its democracy in action. He said that by you being here and you being on the jury, it's akin to putting on a green jersey and representing um, Ireland. So he did said to them, you know, he respected them for their attentiveness throughout the trial. And he also said to them, you know, I'm going to give my closing. So during his closing, like you said, he explains the law. He explains again what the murder charge is and what murder means. And he will also then give a little summary of the case. He kind of seemed like he was deciding whether or not he would be giving um, that summary today. Um, but it, if it does happen, it will be tomorrow. And he did say to them, you know, there's you're not to take any kind of inferences from what I'm saying, whether I'm, you know, if I leave some evidence out, that doesn't mean you should leave it out. If I, you know, paraphrase and you remember the evidence differently, use your own um, common sense. And, you know, it's, it's as you remember it, not as I remember it. So that was Justice uh, Tony Hunt. So earlier on, the day began with the prosecution. Um, Anne-Marie Lawler set out the prosecution case, uh, their, their closing argument, where they, they kind of put it together and try and paint a picture. She focused on a number of issues. I think she initially looked at or detailed Joseph Puska's comments while he was questioned in hospital by Gardy. Yeah, so again, when she started her opening statement or her closing statement, sorry, she um, again went into sort of that presumption of innocence, readable doubt, um, and she kind of asked the jury to leave the empathy and any prejudices they have at the door. Um, going into um, what was said in hospital, I mean, she kind of, they had two expert witnesses tr- during the trial um, to give evidence in relation to those. So one was um, Professor Ryan and the other was Dr. Grundlich, who we heard from yesterday on the stand. So, so he, Dr. Was a, he was a defence witness, uh, Dr. Grundlich. Yeah, so he was the defence witness. Um, he was the, the second defence witness um, and the final one that we had yesterday. So she kind of pointed towards the fact that Professor Ryan is um, an international renowned expert and on, medica- on, on emergency medicine and forensic medicine. Um, and he, she said that he went through the medication in Joseph Puska's system with a fine tooth comb. And this was kind of the whole crux of the argument around those statements given in hospital was the medication in the system. And there was a question hanging over whether or not he was fit to be interviewed. So what she was saying was that Professor Ryan went through it with a fine tooth comb. Even, Prof- or even Dr. Grunlig agreed with the prosecution that Professor Ryan is kind of the world-renowned expert. There's no one kind of that parallels him in, in those concerns. She also put it to Dr. Grunlig. Now, he did a report. So he came in as an expert. He did a report using Joseph Puska's um, hospital records, the charge sheet. Um, he also got the, the book of evidence and he did a report based on that. But it was put to him that he concluded in his report that Joseph Puska would have still had oxycodone, which is the pain relief drug in his system um, when he gave his confession. And he had said that there was 20 milligrams of oxycodone in his system. However, it was it was put to him by 
prosecution that there only could have been, I think it was eight milligrams of the drug in his system. And he actually had predicated his entire report on the wrong dosage. And he agreed that, yes, he had predicated the whole thing on this wrong dosage. There was a lot of kind of question about whether or not him being in hospital on his own and with a family, you know, following surgery, of course, as well, which, you know, he may have perceived it as traumatic. He said that there was you know, at the time, it wasn't actually a Garda interview when, when Joseph Puska um, gave this alleged confession. It was actually just his items were being taken by Gardi. So it wasn't actually an interview. And there was a lot of conversation and back and forth about whether or not the Gardi should have sought um, medical opinion on whether or not Joseph Puska was fit to be interviewed or not. However, of course, it was put to um, them that it wasn't actually an interview where he gave this alleged confession. It was just a casual conversation and he had happened to say it. There was an awful lot of back and forth again about this because uh, Dr. Grunlig had never worked in Ireland. He was um, He's based in the UK. He's never worked in a hospital in Ireland. So he was saying really that Joseph Puska was maybe was disorientated and that's why he had given this false confession because between the disorientation of being in hospital on his own after surgery, the medication um, and the fact that it was perhaps an unfamiliar setting to him that he could have given this confession. However, it was put to him that he was just speculating on the level of familiarity that Joseph Puska had with medical settings. And he agreed that, yes, it was just um, an assumption he was making and that he didn't actually know anything about Joseph Puska's medical history, apart from the fact that he had been in the hospital in 2012 with an abscess on his face. It was also he was going to go into um, Joseph Puska's GP records However, there was an objection from the prosecution because they actually hadn't been privy to those GP records, so they didn't have a chance to go through them. And the only other thing that he said was that um, Joseph Puska had um, the only kind of ongoing issue with him was um, back pain um, for which he took tramadol on the odd occasion. So that was all Monday's final, the final witness in in the trial. As Anne-Marie Lawler then, she kind of wrapped, wrapped up all of these aspects for the for the prosecution. And she spoke very directly about that admission. And she says um, that Joseph Puska pivots between lying and not remember. And some of the lies were foul. And she says that, you know, that that he confessed in this case and it was uh, a powerful, uh, powerful evidence. So in, in the prosecution's cases, this this admission is very significant. Yeah, so she gave kind of a summary of the evidence in the case. And as part of this, she did uh, refer to the, the um, confession that was given. Um, she also spoke about the DNA that was found underneath the fingernails of Ashing Murphy. So this DNA was um, under, now, kind of in the prosecution's um, closing statement, they kind of referred to it and said, we don't know which finger it was on. It could have been um, social or um, passing contact that it came from. Um, but she continued on, you know, she spoke about the eyewitnesses, um, Jenna Stack, who saw Ashing Murphy being held down in the bushes at the side of the canal. And um, this was rebutted by the prosecution who said that when she arrived on scene, you know, she took the view that the woman couldn't, that the lady couldn't call out. And therefore she informed a mistaken impression of what was happening then and there, because of course the prosecute the, the defense are saying that Joseph Puska was actually in that ditch trying to help Ashing Murphy, but also as part of this, um, in Jenna Stack's um, story and Eva Marin's story, who are on the trial are on the stand at the very beginning of the trial, they had said that Joseph Puska's back was to them and his back was to the path. However, in Joseph Puska's account, he was facing the path on the other side of Ashing Murphy and he was facing up and looking up. So there is the kind of the the 
that was there. It was said to the jury, you either believe Dennis Stack or you believe um, Joseph Puska. There was also the issue of the CCTV evidence. So the prosecution say that he was following two women. Both of these women were on the stand. One specifically said that, yes, she felt like she was being followed and that Joseph Puska overtook her but was staring at her the whole time. The other woman, Beata Borowski, um, said she didn't even know that she was being followed. She had no recollection. So the defence then, um, kind of rebutting this, said, you know, that he was described as somebody who had, and he had said this on on the stand that he just slowly cycled around. Other uh, witnesses had described him as cycling leisurely and that it was just a case that he was cycling by them. Then when it came to the fact that he was hiding in the bushes for hours after the attack, the prosecution say he was doing it because the area was a hive of activity. There was guardy, there was ambulances, there was witnesses, people coming up upon the scene to try and help Ashing Murphy. Um, the defence rebut this and say that, well, it is a fact that he had said that he had... Um, he had lost consciousness and was in those bushes for a number of hours. Um, then, of course, as well, the other evidence was that Joseph Busca fled to Dublin following the murder. There was some queries over the word, the, the use of the word fled. So the prosecu- the defence say he didn't flee, he just went to Dublin. Of course, the, the prosecution are saying that he fled because there is no, you know, it's an agreed fact that he did go to Dublin that evening. Um, and then, of course, the fact that Joseph Puska had asked for his clothes to be burned. So that evening after he came home on the 12th of January, um, he had a shower and he admitted to this on the stand. He testified that, yes, he did ask for his clothes to be burned. Um, he doesn't know what happened to them after that, whether or not they were burned. As far as he was concerned, he asked for that to happen. Um you know, in her closing, Amory Lawler said that all evidence points to the guilt of Joseph Puska beyond a reasonable doubt, which of course is the burden of proof in this case is beyond a reasonable doubt. She says in kind of referencing that, what you said about him pivoting between lying and not remembering things, she kind of specifically says, you know, he says that he doesn't remember certain aspects of being in the hospital. So confessing to the guardie, he doesn't remember being in the hospital. Um, but he does remember, for example, he remembers asking about his family um, and making sure that they would be okay. He asked if his name and address was going to be in the paper. He asked if they were going to be all right because he was fearful that the Murphy family might retaliate. And then, of course, there's those instances where he admitted to lying. So, for example, when he he admitted on the stand that he lied to the Gardaí in Blanchardstown about being stabbed in Blanchardstown. Yeah, so, I mean, then after, after Anne-Marie Lawler then, Michael Bowman, uh, who's the defence senior counsel, took to the stand, and he also addressed the issue of of Joseph Puska, who's and the the lies he told the Gardaí. Um, he also said that people, he said that people can lie under certain circumstances, and it doesn't automatically imply guilt. Yeah, he pointed out that people can lie for different reasons, whether it be shame for something else they may have done, whether it's to protect their family, to protect them um, or to protect um, somebody else. Um, he said, that, you know, that there's a lot of different reasons why people might lie. One thing he kind of drew on a lot was there was he said that he, what he was going to talk about was kind of three people um, he was going to group them together. So Professor Ryan, Dr. Grunlig, and then the third man who I'm going to refer to as Mr. A. Um, he was the witness that emailed the Garda Press office and gave this confession. Um, it's just to protect his identity. Um, so he basically wanted to group those three people together to kind of lay out his um, closing speech. So he did again, he started kind of talking about uh, the presumption of innocence and beyond a reasonable doubt and what that meant. Um, And he asked again for them to leave any kind of emotion, prejudice, sympathy or speculation that they had about the case at the door. Um, 
he was talking about rumors that the pair knew each other prior to this um, encounter. And it was said that they, they didn't know each other at all. You know, he referred that there was maybe social media rumors about that, but that wasn't true at all. So then he spoke about the, the, the three people together. So he had spoken about Professor Ryan and how he spoke with such confidence at the stand. And he had also kind of spoken then about um, the differences in what Professor Grundling had said, or sorry, and Dr. Grundling had said, and he then also brought uh, Mr. A into this scenario. So he was saying really that um, the man, Mr. A, who emailed into the Garda station, Garda press office to give a false confession, said that he had difficulty with alcohol and drank to excess on occasions. He also said he had no recollection of sending the email and he, um, he apologised. He said he was drunk. He may have been drunk at the time. Um, and he said that the Gardaí engaged with that email. They confirmed that that man was nowhere near Tullamore and there was no further inquiry undertaken. However, he then said that this man was afforded the um, the sort of what, what Joseph Puska wasn't in terms of they believed straight away that, you know, he was drunk at this time or he had an altered state of mind when he made this confession. Um, so they kind of tied, he tried to tie that all in together. He says that Joseph Puska couldn't remember the engagement with Gardy and that's why they engaged the services of um, Dr. Grunlig. Um, and he said that when Mr. A said that he shouldn't be in line, they accepted that. And when the defence brings in a doctor to make the same kind of inference for Joseph Puska, he said that they've been ridiculed for it. Um, with regards to oxycodone, the medication that was in Joseph Puska's sister, Dr. Grundig's view was multifaceted and it wasn't contingent upon, upon just the opiate medication, but perhaps those factors of being in an unfamiliar um, place uh, without his family. There was, you know, because it was during COVID times, there was no family visiting because he was there um, there was nobody kind of as a kind of social measure of what Joseph Puska is normally like. So they the, the doctors couldn't tell if he was acting or nobody could tell if he was acting in an abnormal way following the surgery, following the um the, the medication either. Um so yeah, there was a lot of discussion about that. Um he said that if Mr. A couldn't be relied upon because he was drunk, the same thing wasn't afforded to um, Joseph Puska and he asked the jury to use their collective common sense from this um, he says that what springs from the evidence um, that's available and the evidence that is established there is a question mark over if there's a question mark over any of that it's because um, it doesn't establish it beyond a reasonable doubt in truth he says that he Joseph Puska done no more on the day of Ashley Murphy's murder than just uh, present to help himself. He kind of said that, that it was the same for the rest of the jury, that Joseph Puska had done no more than them um, in regards to the day uh, of what happened in Tullamore. Um, he also said that there's a lot of evidence. Um, and he, he said that the prosecution was kind of like a child in a sweet shop because she had so much evidence to choose from. Um, but he said, upon stress testing this evidence, you'll find that you be in a position to find Joseph Puska not guilty. Um, and he also warned them about the Fitbit evidence because there is warnings from Fitbit that it shouldn't be used kind of as medical evidence or anything like that um, or to, me to you know measure your the means of your health. So he said, if, if this was really kind of solid evidence why didn't the prosecution have a medical expert there to explain all of that to the jury instead of letting them um, grapple about what it means so he then finalised his closing speech by saying um, it, you know imploring them not to bring in a verdict that doesn't accord with common sense so tomorrow morning it opens is it 10 o'clock or half 10 half 10 tomorrow yeah 
And so the judge will finish up his summation probably at, at lunch. And then we can expect the, the judge indicate that the jury will probably start deliberating on the decision after lunch. Yes, that seems to be the case. So that the jury will then go off and begin their deliberations um, by tomorrow. Yeah. So we'll, we'll, we'll be back tomorrow um, and, and we'll have further updates at that point. So thank you very much, Coda. Thank you, Noel. You've been listening to Crime World, a podcast from sundayworld.com. Produced by Ian Mullaney and edited by me, Nicola Talent. Research assistant is Claude Amini. If you like this show and love true crime, leave us a review. Or why not download the free sundayworld.com app for lots more stories from Ireland and across the globe. Would you like to be able to start conversations like a pro? Take The Sunday World, your daily dose of what's going on. Do not consume The Sunday World if you're involved in a drug cartel, you're a politician with something to hide, or you've appeared on a reality TV show and care about others' opinions. Consume The Sunday World responsibly. Always read the stories, gossip, and commentary.